Ephesians, Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, this morning we've looked at these verses uh, uh, two weeks ago with Calvary Kids Camp uh, and pulled in the application there. Uh, I want to return to them this morning before we continue on in this passage, and I want to do something a little different this morning. Uh, our modus operandi, just whether it's in here or whether it's in our uh, classes or whether it's in our life groups, is to just work our way through passages of scriptures or to look at particular topics and then make the application out of them. This morning, I, I thought it was important, I feel like it's important to go after a specific application with everything that's going on in our nation. And, and think about what is going on in our nation. And that's not just an academic exercise as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, because God always calls us into the fray, so to speak. He always calls us to be a part of redemptive works. And so this isn't a thing where we sit on the sidelines and we observe and make comments or evaluations, this is what God calls us into to be a part of. And so, um, so anyway, in the short amount of time that we have, I want us to kind of look at that and work our way um, and, and try to understand some of what's going on. So maybe these are familiar verses, but let's read them one more time. Hebrews 4, beginning of verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for its great effectiveness in helping us to know who you are and helping us to be ready to stand judged before you. Because we thank you that we're amongst very privileged people to know that when all is said and done, you are the one with whom we have to do. And so, uh, would you use your word this morning? Spirit of the living God, would you come and would you wield it in the beautiful and perfect way that you do um, in each of our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts so that as we walk out of here, we could be even uh, in a better place, if that's possible, in our understanding of who you are and our living our lives for your great honor and glory. So we trust you, we look to you, boy, are we glad you're infinite in all of your abilities and in your great love for us. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen. So let me begin this morning with this question. What difference does what a person believes make? What difference does it make what you believe? What difference does it make what I believe? Uh, Because that's kind of at the crux and the core of trying to understand 
why people do what they do, why I do what I do, and why we as a nation do what we do. Or here's the follow-up question. What difference does it make whether we believe and look to God for wisdom and help and obey Him as an individual in our relationships and as a nation? Does it make a difference what we believe? And I believe that the Scriptures make it very clear that God has made us as people to function out of what we believe. And we're going to look at that for a few minutes. But when you look at what goes on, especially last weekend, or a few days before in Gilroy, and then El Paso, and then Ohio, and then the old-timers gathering in New York, and I think very related if you look at the suicide rates. Um, what is going on and what are you and I called to do about that? And so I want to just look for a few minutes at our part in our national crisis. And you'll notice I think we all need to take some ownership here and some responsibility. And uh, that's what followers of Jesus do. But first of all, let's look at this whole idea of a national crisis. Now, some would disagree that it's not a national crisis because we're personally untouched by it. We're still eating well. We're still living well. Um, but I would suggest that according to the Old Testament and scriptures, um, that changes quickly once the heart of a nation is gone. And uh, while I hope it never happens here, we would be kidding ourselves to think that we will be the first and only nation in all of history that God deals with by a different standard. And, uh, and so let's look at that for a few minutes. Jesus made this connection between what we believe and how we behave in Luke chapter 6. And actually, before we look at that, let me just say this. Um, there are a lot of horizontal issues a lot of very complex horizontal issues. And I'm not trying to minimize those, and I'm not uh, trying to just blow by those. And there's a lot of irresponsibility on the parts of just about everybody from our president to parents. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to, to minimize those. I'm not trying to do any of that. What I'm saying is what I believe the scriptures make clear is that underneath it all there's a rotten root. Underneath it something is wrong. Something we there is a systemic evil within our nation. Now most people don't know it but it is there and I feel like trying to change leaders which may be helpful Trying to change laws, which may be helpful, is like putting some ointment and a Band-Aid on a leg that's got gangrene. And, and so, what is the systemic issue that's going on here? And to this, Jesus spoke during his day, because the culture of his day, although very religious, had its issues as well. And so, he says... For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so the uh, obvious illustration there is as a tree. How do you know what kind of a tree it is? You look at the fruit. And if you, know, if you want to know whether the apple tree is a good apple tree, what else do you do? You taste the fruit. Because not all apple trees are bearing sweet fruit anymore. And so Jesus makes this, and, it, and, he's, and he's trying to help the people of his day, uh, the Jews of his day, to understand that what they're eating of is rotten fruit. And there's a reason that the fruit is rotten, and there's no sense trying to change the fruit. You've got to change the root. And that's what he had come to do. And so he says, people function like trees, and there's this treasury out of which everybody lives. There's this treasury out of which everybody speaks. And, and, and so there's this connection between what is in our hearts and what comes out of our mouths and how we behave. And so he's making that very clear, and I, don't, I think all of us would say, that's true. We, we understand that to be true. And so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, so what is in the heart? I want to suggest that what is in the heart is what we really believe. What we really believe. And so we might put it this way. We might say that belief leads to behavior. If you want to know, or here's a statement that is always so painful to me, our behavior betrays our beliefs. I mean, that is just, just so painful. If there's thorns coming out of my mouth, there's no sense me thinking I'm the greatest Christian that lived in my house, right? There, if there's thorns coming out of my mouth, if there's words that aren't bringing grace to my wife, then I shouldn't be thinking I'm loving her as Christ loves the church. Which one's right? The fruit reveals the true belief in my heart. And that's why the scriptures are filled with all kinds of beliefs, not so, all kinds of behaviors, beliefs too, all kinds of behaviors, not so that we'll just try to change the behaviors. We don't believe in behavior modification, but so that we will recognize there's something systemic wrong. There's something wrong in what we believe. And we need to go after and change what we believe. Now, as we go through the Scriptures, I think we could sum up the Scriptures by saying there are three core beliefs that are just reiterated in a few thousand ways about what to believe. And then there's a few million behaviors uh, that are associated with particular beliefs. But here's the three core beliefs that I just want to capture this morning. One is that God is. Or using Moses' encounter at, uh, at the burning bush, Yahweh, literally, I am. God is. And it's important just to see that He is. He is. He is who He is. And here's just some things that I think would help us to capture 
what we have to believe about him. He is noble through his word. God is only accurately noble through his word and the whole counsel of his word. All kinds of people can come up with all kinds of ideas about who God is, but he has made himself known by speaking to us and giving us his word. He is perfect. He's perfect in his person, his plans, and his providence. Providence is simply the way he works out his plans. Now that's a big deal, to understand that his providence is perfect, and he's not looking at each instant as an end in itself. He's looking at how each incident and each incident adds up to the holistic picture that he might be honored and glorified and that those who trust and believe in him might be blessed and live gloriously forever. So he is perfect. He is love and life and generously gives both. As Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. And so people as a whole experience his life and his love. We often call that common grace. And then he uniquely gives that to people who would believe in him, in his special grace in Christ, where we have the fullness of his love in Christ. We've spent a lot of time singing about that this morning and the life that comes through Christ. Next, he has the same moral righteous standards for each person. This is a biggie. The same moral standards for all people. Now again, just to use my own home as an example, there's not one moral standard for me and another for Camilla. There's not one moral standard for Camilla and I and different ones for our kids. It's the same moral standard. Lying is not permitted no matter who you are in our home. Being kind is a requirement no matter who you are in our home. I'm not, I'm not imposing those standards. That's, that's a moral standard given to us by God. So, uh, selfless love towards one another. Now, we may be different places in our development, right? Welcome to parenting. Now, we're not, and we're not talking about bedtimes, because you can have different bedtimes. That's not a moral issue. But there's exactly the same moral standard for all people, all people in our home, all people in our nation, no matter what position anybody holds. It is exactly the same moral standard no matter who a person is. And lastly, and probably most significantly, each person is accountable to him. Each and every person is accountable to God. And so, for example, looking at the very positive side, a person who would believe in that, using the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians, that belief in God will create a behavior of love and joy and peace and self-control, meekness, kindness, and patience. A person who roots themselves in that and works hard to believe in that by the power of the Spirit, those are the fruits the Scripture tells us will come out. Now, there's a lot of other fruits up there of being kind and being gracious and to be forgiving and, uh, and all of those things. But you see the connection there. What we believe is really important. 
because it produces a particular fruit. The second core value that we need to understand that the scripture teaches so well is about us as people, each of us individually and all of us together. Each and every person is created by God in his likeness and image. This is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Um, Because what it does is it creates inherent worth in every single person. Equal inherent worth. Independent of education, ethnicity, family backgrounds, places they live, church they go to. Uh, I mean, you could put anything in that list. It creates equal inherent worth. Uh, It's a little bit like gold. Gold has the same value no matter what context it is going to be used in. People have the same inherent value because they are created in the image and likeness of God. And God, this is a really big deal with God. I mean, he gave a one new law. Well, one of the new laws that he gave to Noah after the flood is how to deal with people who cheapen a human life. And so people, each and all, are created by God in his image and likeness. They have a transcendent life and purpose. And by that I mean they have a purpose greater than themselves. They have an existence greater than their finite right now. Both of those things are really important. People, once they're created, live forever. That's a transcendent reality. People have a greater purpose than for themselves. And this is a big deal because a person should never live just for themselves. They should live out this transcendent purpose in light of living forever. Now, one of the ways that the church has captured this for quite a few years is to say this life will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last, which is just a different way of saying 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because it always adds up. It always adds up. It is never, never in vain. Now, the one, the last one is that people are depraved. Depraved. What does it mean to be depraved? Yeah, we don't like to talk about this one, but it's pretty obvious. It simply means that inside of us, our bent is away from God. Our bent is against people unless we can use them for our good. In other words, we're all about us. It's idolatry with a capital I. And so we will use and abuse people. Um, And so anger is justified. All kinds of stuff happens. Let me read. You may want to flip over to Romans 10. Romans 10, Paul concludes his argument about the depravity of all people by pulling together verses from several different places in the Old Testament. And he's making the case that Jews are just as depraved as Greeks are, non-Jewish people. Because in that day, the Jews viewed the Greeks as depraved, but not themselves. And he spent a lot of time saying, you're just as depraved 
You, you share this depraved nature. And, uh, and so let's begin at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than non-Jews? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, and here's a string of Old Testament uh, scriptures. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Every once in a while I'll say something and I'll think, why did I say that? I don't even... I mean, if I'd thought through this, I would never have said that. Why do I say that? What's this verse say? The poison of asp is under my lips. Now, I can either be honest about that or say, eh, whatever. It's there, is it not? Any of you have this experience or is it only me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the doctor's diagnosis right here. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Think about that in some of the recent events. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's something all people share in common, is this depravity. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a British um, what, newspaper writer, I think primarily, um, died not too many years ago, came to Christ later in life. He says this, the depravity of man is at once the most empir empirically verifiable fact, while at the same time it is the most intellectually resistant. I mean, he says you look around, it's empirically verifiable, probably in some of our homes this morning. But, but intellectually we say, no, 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 can't be. It is. It is. Now, thankfully, the last core value that is so important is that God rescues and makes people a blessing. This is the craziest part of the whole deal. Is that he takes people like that, that he's put inherent worth in, and he's created for transcendent reasons, who are totally depraved because of their own nature and their sinfulness, and he, he rescues us. And he makes it, people who believe in him a great blessing to other people. And Jesus, this is the way he began his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. What would be the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God would be where everybody loves God and loves their neighbors as themselves. I mean, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's right there. It's right there within your reach. What do you have to do to experience and to live in the kingdom of God? Repent. Repent. And believe in the gospel. That's the summation that Christ came and he lived and he was crucified to pay for our sins and he was resurrected the third day and he's coming back again to make everything absolutely right. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's it say? 
Change your belief system. Change what you believe in. Believe in Christ. Believe in the Gospel. Now to do that, you have to repent. You have to recognize you're on the wrong path. you got the wrong beliefs. And believe in the Gospel. And here's the promise. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'll make you become what I intended you in your transcendent creation to be. To have a purpose greater than yourself and to be fishers of other people. And so we return to this then. How big of a deal is it what we believe? It's everything. It's everything. That's why we teach the Scriptures to renew our minds. That's why we don't want to be conformed to this world. It's everything. So, so what happens when the belief is that there is no God? What kind of behaviors flow out of a belief that there is no God? All kinds. There's no accountability on the other side of the grave. I can do whatever to anybody else. Oh, I may get caught and have to pay a little bit of a price here. Or you know what I can do? I can just do it to them and then take my own life. And that's the end of it. I mean, all kinds of these behaviors are rooted in wrong beliefs. And so it's very, very important what we believe. And you might just run the rabbit trail here a little bit, but if you believe in evolution, which I believed for the first 20 years of my life, what kind of behaviors would you expect if you're told you're just an animal? Would you expect any different behavior than an animal? The only reason we've gotten away with it for so long is because of our Judeo-Christian roots. And you take the scriptures out of the schools in the early 60s and prayer out of them, which thankfully you students can take it right back in. But you take it out as a, a belief. And there's a price to be paid for that. There's a price to be paid. And so you end up with a culture where killing people with words or with weapons is all justifiable because of the treasury of the hearts of the people doing it. And they're just living that out. Well, what can we do? What can we do? Because we're not helpless here. Amen? We are not helpless. I mean, the only reason to diagnose the situation is to figure out what God's up to and, and then to be a part of, of what He has called us to do. So what is our part in this? Our part, just to put it in the terms that we use here, is to be developing in our own devotion to follow Jesus. Just keep growing in our own devotion to follow Jesus. How do you know how you should vote? Well, be de developing your own devotion to follow Jesus. How do you know whether you should take this job or run for this office or to live here? All of that comes out of this. I'm married to a woman who knows 
more children's songs than anybody should be allowed to know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the great beneficiary of it because it often pops up in applicational situations. And so one of them that they've been singing is, because uh, the kids are working through the Exodus over in the children's area, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. That's simple and profound. The wilderness is a picture of the world we live in. And what we have to do is follow him. Can anybody, apart from Jesus, figure out how to navigate this situation we're in? No. Nobody can. Jesus knows. He's an expert at this. He's been doing it for a lot of years, and he did it personally in his own country. He knows. He knows what we should do. And so, how do we do this? Well, using the four ways that we develop our own devotion to Christ, just know God and keep living our life according to the Scriptures. Just know Him. And I'll combine it with the next one of engaging His family a little bit, but it is so helpful to be around other believers who help you know God and live our life according to the Scriptures. Turn over to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. We won't look at all these. I just put them up there. Some of you don't even need to turn there because you've got this one memorized, and that's, how, that's really good. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man, and that's the generic word for man, how blessed is the man or woman, the boy or the girl, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He or she will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf also does not wither. And whatever he or she does, they will prosper. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's amazing how applicable this song is all the time. It was applicable, obviously, in David's day. But think about this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I think one of the great challenges we have today is when this was written, you know, where would you, where would you uh, stand in the path of sinners? Where would you listen to the counsel of the wicked? Where would you be around scoffers? Well, it could be your neighbor's could be the city gates. It would probably be where you shopped. But, but since then, you know, then newspapers started fulfilling this role. And then the radio began fulfilling this role. And then TV began to fill this role. And now the internet, I mean, you could be sitting in the seat of scoffers on your phone right now. And there's just this inundation 
of, of, of scoffing and, and, uh, and the counsel of the wickeds and, and all of that input. And it's even more important that we delight in the law of the Lord and in his law, meditate and chew like a cow does its cud day and night. Because that tells us how to follow Jesus. That tells us how we know God and we keep living our life according to the scriptures. I would suggest that we're more desperately dependent upon the scriptures and us meditating on them today than we were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. The challenge is, is that we gotta up our intake probably. I don't know about you, but it's easy to get caught up in the news and all that's going on and end up spending more time knowing more about that than this and allowing that to influence me more than this. And then is it any wonder that behaviors start showing up that are not founded in God and in the Word? Now, as I said, the Word is just so beautifully applicable. And uh, so two things that happened in our family this week that just popped up. Camilla's reading through Leviticus right now. And so she read Leviticus 18 one morning, and she says, do you know that when Israel was in the wilderness, um, God said to them, don't, don't copy the behaviors of Egypt out of which you came. Don't copy the behaviors of the Canaanites in which land you're going. And he, and he, and he specifically mentions several behaviors. One of them is uncovering the nakedness of family members. And I mean, it, he spends 10 verses outlining that. One is adultery. One is child sacrifice. And while we don't do child sacrifice for the sake of trying to appease the gods, we do child sacrifice today to appease the, husband, the father or the mother. Um, I drew a blank. Oh, bestiality and same-sex relationships. And he says, if you do, I'll treat you just like I did Egypt and just like I did the Canaanites. It's important to be reading the whole counsel of God. In fact, I would suggest make sure you're reading quite a bit or listening to the Old Testament. Charles Stanley, I heard him say 40 years ago when I was just getting into the ministry, if you want to see the character of God, read the Old Testament. Because you see that his judgments may come very slowly, but man, are they precise. Nobody gets away with anything. Well, there's some other verses there, but um, uh, knowing God and living our lives according to the scriptures and make sure that we continue to engage as family in God's church to become more like Jesus. Now, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir right here, but it's just really important and maybe particularly as we talk about what's going on in our nation, I, I just want to beg you to never make any political views greater than what Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection. That is just evil and it's satanic. In the days of the New Testament, it was the ethnic diversity and the slave and the free. And 
this New Testament makes it clear <clears throat> that Jesus tore down those dividing walls. In our days, we've got other dividing walls we build. You know, schooling methodologies, what you're supposed to eat, and politics is one of them. God forbid that those would ever become as significant as the gospel and what Christ has done. Make sure you continue to engage as family in God's church with people who do not agree with you on everything. It's really healthy. Yeah, it can be a little irritating at times, but it's healthy. It forces you to say, well, I may disagree with them on that, but we agree with each other about what Jesus did on our behalf, and we're, as we emphasized earlier, we're all children. I guess we'll have to let the gospel be more important than everything else. That is super, super important. Organize our lives to tell others about Jesus. This is part of the great transcendent person, uh, purpose of what God has created us for. And um, here's the reality. Hurt people do what? Hurt people. What do loved people do? They love people. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are amongst the most loved. You are perfectly loved. We sang about that. What do people who are loved do? They love other people. And they organize their lives to love other people. And there's nothing better that we can do than to tell them about Jesus. To tell them your beliefs are all screwed up. That's why you're behaving this way. You need to repent and believe in the gospel and begin to follow Jesus and let him make you a fisher of men. And the last one, in all things, praising God and depending upon him in prayer. I hope you're praising God that you're alive in this time in history. You should be. God doesn't make any mistakes. Praise God, I'm right in the thick of something. This is really exciting. Praise God that if I were to die, I'd know right where I'd go. Praise God that everything is not swirling out of control. He, you are perfect. You're perfect in your uh, person. You're perfect in your plans. You're perfect in your providence. Praise be to God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't grieve and we don't ache over the things that we experience. But we can praise the one who knows that it's all going to add up. It's going to add up. It's going to add up because he's got a plan and purpose that's way bigger than anything you and I can possibly imagine. And in fact... The next part of this is, is to live dependent upon him in prayer. Recognize we're in over our heads. Recognize that we have a desperate need. Now, there's been a lot of mocking uh, go on about responding to horrible things that happen by saying, I'm, you're in my thoughts and prayers. And I would suspect that a lot of people who say that, there's nothing behind that. But the reality is, 
if you are committed to living dependently upon the Lord through prayer, when you say that, you can put something behind that and it makes a difference. It makes a difference if you and I, when we read through those stories of the people who were killed at Walmart, we pray for those families. Why do I say that? Because I have a belief that what God says in James 5, that the effectual fervent prayer of one who's right standing with God in Christ accomplishes much. I believe that. I believe that. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for our national repentance. We need to be praying for those so horribly affected by this. And then we sum all this up by if you're developing in your own devotion to follow Jesus, you will be going and developing devoted followers of Jesus. It's just the way it works. We will be doing that. And so just to kind of pull this together maybe, um, I feel a little bit like we're on the Titanic. And, and you know, it, it, it may help the trip to rearrange the deck chairs. It may, you know, to get different leaders, um, to make different laws. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to argue any of that. Um, but here's the deal. Until we begin to say, help God, and we repent towards God, there's something systemic and core that's wrong. Now, thankfully, our ability to make a difference is not dependent upon the national response. We can make a difference in the places where we work, the places we go to school, the neighborhoods we live in, and the places that we have influence. We can make a difference. And so, on the Titanic, we can be walking around making disciples of other people, can we not? And guess what? We're all going to die and we're all going to live forever. The question is, where are we going to live forever? Is it going to be heaven? Or will it be hell? And you and I have the good news to help people become followers of Jesus Christ so they live forever. Where? In heaven. In heaven. So what do you say? I don't know, it's pretty exciting to me. What do you think? Yeah. I, I can't imagine. Can you believe it that God gives us the privilege of helping people live forever? Is that the craziest deal? That's the craziest deal. And this is one thing I know. We should never live in fear. We should live ready to die. And we should live ready to keep making disciples no matter what comes. And we shouldn't cultivate any of this fear in our kids. We should be praising God like Esther, who knows that we're here for such a time as this. Let's pray together. And let's go ahead and use uh, a few moments here to pray for our national leaders. And let's go ahead and intercede on their behalf.
Father, how we beg you to turn every one of our national leaders' hearts to you. How we pray that you would bless those who already know you with a significant influence as they follow you and a significant ability to help develop other people to follow you. Lord, we ask that you would bless those who are hostile to you, don't see where you fit, uh, are ignorant of you. We pray that you would bless them with a hearing of the gospel and that amazing gift of repentance so that they would be like a tree that becomes planted by the rivers of water. And we pray that they then would begin to live and put their roots down into you so that you could radically change the fruit that is produced in their lives. God, we just pray that you would be gracious to our leaders who will stand accountable one day before you. And it's not about what they can get away with. It's about we want them to be ready for that meeting with you with whom they have to do. And Lord, for a lot of us, that's not our place of influence. I mean, we can vote, we should, we can do other things. But God, you've given us other places of influence. And God, how I pray that each one of us would be going and developing people to become followers of you. That we wouldn't cheapen our lives, but we would live out that grand purpose for which you've created us. So even right now, Spirit of God, would you give us ideas on maybe who or where? Where we can be developing people, lost people, people on the fringes, people that are hopeless, people that are doing well, as the world would count it. God, give us, give us ideas, give us these people and Lord, we commit to go as we follow you and to develop them to become followers of you. Man, we bless you for being such a God. We bless you for calling us to be your people. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.